Welcome to the No Normal. New Music Edmonton presents The No Normal, a podcast series featuring the words and works of creative sonic artists from central Alberta and beyond. In a moment, NME's artistic director Ian Crutchley will introduce the subjects of this installment of The No Normal. But first, New Music Edmonton respectfully acknowledges that this celebration of creativity was produced on Treaty 6 territory. Amiskwichiwiskaigan is the traditional gathering place of the many indigenous peoples whose histories, languages, and cultures continue to influence and enrich our community. We further acknowledge that it was the indigenous peoples of Treaty 6 who established the principles for, and have remained exemplars of, the respectful and caring use of this land for the purposes of art, livelihood, and spirituality. It is from these principles that New Music Edmonton has sought and will continue to seek partnerships, inspiration, and learning. For more information about NME's programming and events, look us up on social media or visit our website, newmusicedmonton.ca. And now, here is Ian Crutchley. Hi, everyone. You're about to hear a conversation I recently had with composer and sound artist Sean Pinchbeck, one of the mainstays of the local music scene since the 1980s. Sean's work is deeply and beautifully steeped in the use of technology. His music is richly varied in terms of what it sounds like, and also in terms of what technology is used and how it's deployed. There is core use of the computer as both a platform for generating complex, pre-composed electroacoustic pieces, and also as a tool for improvisations. Sean is also an expert in the area of making field recordings, which are the source of most sounds one finds in his works, and is equally at home making works in his studio or in live performance collaborations across all disciplines. Our discussion touches on most of these areas, and excerpts related to the discussions are included. Welcome, Sean. Nice to have a chat with you. When I think about your work, I mostly think about technology. Well, I think about creativity using technology. In every instance that I've seen you perform or listen to one of your works, it has included fantastic uses of technology of various kinds. And so I'm kind of wondering how that started for you, because there must have been some point in your life where you picked up your first piece of sound producing technology and tried to make it make a sound. And I'm wondering if you can remember what that was and when. I got a cassette tape recorder when I was five and started making recordings of stories and funny noises and stuff like that. Yeah. So I always had an interest in recording and sound and then got interested in, I I think I got like a, one of these Radio Shack 101 electronic project kits or something. So I built little oscillator circuits and started playing around with those and and then discovered my walkie-talkie could be a really good oscillator and noisemaker. And then at some point I started recording weird electronic pieces, probably when I was, I don't know, 11 or 12 or something. I didn't even know what it was, but it was some kind of weird electroacoustic music. Did you do that thing with the walkie-talkies where you push talk on both of them and feedback? Yeah. And also the old screwdriver into the circuit board. Very exciting sometimes. When you had these things, do you remember hearing music that featured those kinds of sounds or was it just something that you found really interesting to do? I was familiar with electronic music. My older brothers, they were into Tangerine Dream and Pink Floyd 
So I had heard sort of electronic music and was interested in those sorts of sounds and things. Do you remember when might have been the first time you saw somebody performing live with electronic sounds? Probably in junior high school with our friends. Um, there was a band in Edmonton at the time called Psyche and they had synthesizers and they were playing music. So I'd hang out with those guys. So, um, so that was probably it. There wasn't much opportunity in Edmonton <laughs> at the time. You know, having technology as the focus of your work as an artist is um, something that, you know, I'm wondering if you can talk about how that happened. Like what trajectory did you follow or were there particular people that influenced you to do that? Maybe you encountered somebody along the way that sort of bounced you away in that direction or something like that. I've always been pretty uh, technically inclined and tinkery. So uh, even as a kid, I was always taking things apart and putting together and, and then got interested in computers at a young age and even started programming like melodies and stuff on my old Commodore computer when I was quite young. So uh, always just interested in technology and playing around with, with that stuff and tinkering. I guess it's just an inclination. Well, was there maybe a point where you realized that you were very strongly interested in something that maybe your friends only had a passing interest in that made you realize this was more important to you than it was to some some of your friends yeah at some point i uh yeah i was really into experimental music and industrial music and electronic music i guess i probably started hearing some electroacoustic music as well early 80s because they there used to be two new hours and stuff like that on cbc at the time so so there was places to hear stuff. And there was a group of us who were interested in, in sound and, and electronic music. Around 12 years of age, we were already pretty into it. And so we were, uh, I guess, a community, you know, <laughs> at that time. And uh, so there was lots of exchange of ideas and music and listening to new stuff. And uh, we were all, you know, buying records at SU Records at the University of Alberta. They would bring in all kinds of weird stuff. So uh, we were well fed for music and, uh, and influences from a young age. So, it, you know, it was really rather lucky. There was that group of us really into experimenting with sound and electronic music. Like it, it was quite easy to get involved in it because there was several of us doing it and pretty serious about it. I was a bit behind my friends. They were already performing live and stuff in junior high and getting kicked out of bars for being underage and playing on stage and stuff. But uh, I guess in high school, I started performing these very crazy multimedia shows with dance and film projections and tape loops and weird performance art. And, and was that with this collection of people that you knew or was that just you doing that? That was my instigation, but it was kind of a, a group of us who were all quite inclined and uh, were really interested in, you know, more experimental forms and stuff. So, but it seemed quite normal to mix all kinds of medias together and just make a, make a big show. The thing at the time <laughs> uh, was that, uh, you know, we were trying to put on a spectacle uh, with all kinds of crazy stuff going on. Are any of those people still kind of around and people that you know and are still working in this area? 
Well, the band Psyche, Darren is still active, um, and Stephen passed away a few years ago. But Darren is still busy, and he's lived in Germany uh, for many years and has been quite successful. Another fellow, Keith Wettish, who I worked with quite a bit, he uh, he's living somewhere in India. He's not making music anymore and became a Buddhist monk. From those early years, people kind of scattered, so not too many actually continued on out of that bunch. But my friend Michael Turner from the band The Sensualists in Titania, he's still around. Do you have any uh, documentation of all those shows that you were doing then? Yeah, we have. I have some recordings. I don't know what they are. They're interesting, you know. <laughs> we weren't without some skills, I guess. They're, yeah, no, they're, they are interesting. What was happening in Edmonton at the time and the kind of scorn we received from <laughs> some of the audience. Some people were into it. You know, Edmonton had quite a vibrant music scene and, and CGSR was very active. There was uh, Marcel Dion's show of experimental music departures that had been on... Uh, CGSR actually since I was a kid. So that was another big influence was Marcel's radio program from a quite young age. Mm-hmm. And uh, so there was kind of a, there was some people into it and there was interest from cam- the campus radio folks. And so, uh, so there was somewhat of an audience. Have you listened to any of it recently? Not recently. I did digitize them from cassette uh, a few years ago. So I do have them uh, handy. I didn't really listen to them.
you know, somewhere along the way, you must have encountered some influential people, uh, mentors, if I want to use those things, you know, that kind of word. But I'm wondering if there were certain people that you met either in Edmonton or elsewhere that sent you off in the direction where you were going to really pursue this full time as a student and, um, and as an artist later. Yeah, it was interesting. You know, this was a time when the Canadian electroacoustic community was starting up. And so I uh, had come across, you know, some of their activities when they began and was in contact with Kevin Austin, uh, one of the instigators of CEC. And uh, so I was aware of, you know, some of that electroacoustic stuff. And at that time also, uh, like in the sort of late 80s and early 90s, Empreinte Digital, this record label that Jean-Francois Denis uh, runs, they were releasing stuff. So there was a lot of these Quebec acousmatic composers that were releasing stuff in that time and kind of made their way to me, maybe perhaps through Garth Hopton, who was teaching electroacoustic music at the U of A at the time. A lot of that stuff was, you know, on CBC as well. So there was those influences and, and certainly, uh, you know, when I took electroacoustics at the U of A, sort of turned it into, well, this is actually maybe something to be taken seriously. I think that's around the time when I really thought, well, maybe I'm not something else. I'm actually a composer and I'm going to be doing this stuff. So, uh, so that was a good influence at the time. Those on digital records, they were so impactful. They sounded great and it was music I hadn't heard before. And of course they were just really beautiful compared to most other CDs that were being released around that time. Yeah, no, they looked great and the music was, you know, really great. It was a really vibrant community, you know, in Quebec at the time and, and across the country, there was composers from across the country that were releasing stuff. So what sorts of things were you doing in Garth Hobden's electronic music class at the University of Alberta? Well, there was different, you know, usual sort of projects you had to do, playing around with different technology. And, and I was already had been active for quite a few years. And so I actually ended up recording uh, an album in the studios, um, album Resonance with uh, Marion Garver, soundscape type compositions with flute, some of that kind of stuff, and some experimental or more acousmatic pieces as well, because we were, you know, listening to, you know, Robert Normando or someone like this in our classes and listening to, you know, some of the classic electroacoustic pieces as well. I mean, at that point, would you have also been learning analog technique? Yeah, the studio was analog at the time with, I think there was a digital audio tape recorder to master onto. And I guess there was a computer you could uh, play MIDI stuff with, but it was, you know, 91. So computers are pretty slow at the time and you couldn't do much audio on them for a home computer. So yeah, it was all analog. It was nice to get my hands on good sounding analog gear. I'd you know, been recording for years at home. It was very expensive to buy recording equipment at that time. Like a four track tape recorder was near a thousand bucks um you know so uh, at the time this is 1980 dollars it was a lot of money even for a cassette four track so and a mixing desk was thousands so um it was hard to get your hands on good equipment just was not around the first day that i went into the studio at ubc where i studied it was just breathtaking to see all these things in there and let alone then the first time that I had booked the studio and 
was in there all alone and had access. I could do anything I wanted and cutting my fingertips with the tape splicing and things like that. Shortly after that, that I attended the computer art intensive at Simon Fraser University for a couple of summers. That was summer long workshop. Uh, I forget how many weeks it ran, at least a month, if not six weeks or something. And uh, so then they would assemble all the greats of interactive art at the time. Then you had instruction from them and collaborations and uh, people like Tekla Shiphurst uh, was, was involved in helping or probably one of the main instigators. And uh, so there was dance and movement and it was a mix of artists who came to that. So that's where I learned Max and uh, got uh, exposure to interactivity and, and multimedia and computer-based practice like that. George E. Lewis was teaching and uh, Daniel Scheidt and some folks like this who were really pioneers of interactive art were very active at the time. So that was very eye-opening and expanded. You know, I was already really into sound and recording and soundscapes and and then that just really uh, pushed my interest into computer-based practice and interaction and stuff. Yeah, it was very, uh, like the people involved ended up being very influential people in interactive art for decades to come. It was really, uh, really exciting and, and interesting. And the instructors were great. They had like Myron Kruger and Don Ritter and David Rokeby and all kinds of, uh, you know, people who have done some amazing things. That's, that's so, a pretty thrilling experience to have. And it was like a whole summer. Yeah. Yeah. So you got to hang out and every day that's what you were doing. <laughs> so it was pretty, pretty cool. Now, I mean, my background, as you know, is initially anyway, was in classical composition. And, you know, there's a certain assumption about things you learn in terms of hearing when you do classical music and you know it's this sort of ear training paradigm you know that sort of thing but i tend to think that often when i've heard your performances i've said to somebody next to me like sean just has such killer ears when he is working you know when he's performing and i'm kind of wondering if you could talk about the development of your your hearing as you've kind of progressed as an artist within within these electronic media i don't know how that worked exactly. Yeah, I've always been very inclined towards sound and very aware of sound. And uh, so I guess I just have that natural, you know, interest and in, in gift in, in listening. Um, and have always been pretty handy with the mixing and, and that kind of thing. So uh, it's just something that is part of my, my art, you know. I've always been mixing sounds together and and manipulating them in my live shows since the 80s have had elements of live mixing and soundscapes and, and this kind of thing in it. It's always yeah been a part of my work. I would say certainly the way I hear has changed, how I understand sound and the, the things I notice has changed for sure. I think during the process of getting a master's and a PhD in Birmingham, this kind of changed, tuned me in, in different ways. You, you know, when you have someone like John T. Harrison telling you uh, the way he was listening to my work at things he would notice. And so this was really, oh yeah, okay. So there's this different level of listening 
that I hadn't been tuning into in the you know amount I should. Do you mean that he was hearing things that you didn't know were there, or was he was his hearing emphasizing things that you maybe didn't think were as important as he found them? Yeah, I think a little bit of both. Like there'd be things that in it that he would notice that I'd be like, oh yeah, I guess that is you know a big part of what's going on there, or aspects of it that just didn't occur to me. Certainly compositionally and structurally and this kind of thing. Heard things differently afterwards has changed what I do to some degree. I was already, you know, I didn't, I went to university quite late. So um, I already had my, my bad habits and such, but I did learn a lot, but it didn't really change what I do, I think, but it uh, definitely changed some of the approaches I had, I think. One thing that I noticed in your performances is um, whether they're pre-recorded electroacoustic works or live performances. Some artists like to play their their music really loud, very loud, and you don't tend to do that. I always find that you have your your volumes at a really comfortable level. I kind of like that because it allows me to really hear detail and and not to be a little bit afraid <laughs> for my ears. Yeah. And so is that an intentional part of your work? Well, it's more I'm just trying to save my ears <laughs> and everyone else's. Um, I don't like really loud music um, or really loud sounds. Um, like, you know, like it's okay for moments if it's 110 decibels or something, but not 120 dB the whole time. I don't want to be deaf at the end of a show. Like you say, you can hear more and enjoy it more, and you're not like thinking about physical aspect. You know, your ears aren't hurting, or the bass isn't churning your innards. Or I'm not really interested in that. Some people really love to, you know, have their guts wrenched by subwoofers, and it is a big part of lots of you know music out there. I personally don't like it. I don't like the sensations, so that's why I shy away from that. I don't dismiss the people that do like noise, for example, where there's a there's a, a need really for it to be extremely loud. But but with so much detail in your music, I, I tend to find that the ability to just be calm while you're listening to it and, <laughs> and go into it rather than being hit by it. You know, in my music, there's quite a lot of dynamic. So there are loud parts and noisy and disconcerting I think but then there's you know the quiet moments too so balancing those two things is important in my work it can be very impactful but it isn't all the time
we were talking a bit ago about John T. Harrison and the University of Birmingham in England. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what drew you to go and do studies there. Yeah, um, it was actually a bit of an accident. I wasn't planning on studying in university at all. And then I was visiting David Barazan, who is from Alberta and was an old friend. And I was in England uh, working with my friend Rose McDowell. So I went and visited there. I met Jaunty, who I had met at ICMC when it was in Banff in 1995. And Jaunty said, hey, why don't you do a master's degree? And I'm like, I don't know. And he's like, yeah, I should come here. So then um, I applied and got in. So it was a bit of an accident and I didn't have a lot going on. I didn't have a day job at the time and stuff. So it was a good time to go. And I had the interest and inclination. And I actually ended up studying with Eric Anya, who uh, was my advisor. And he was a max expert, great conductor, great composer, really uh, skillful fellow in many ways. So it was uh, the perfect time for me to go crazy with max programming with him and do some of the projects that I was doing, which were interactive installation works, motion sensing and generating soundscapes from motion sensing. So what year did you go to Birmingham the first time? Mm, that was 2003 and four. I did my master's there. So it was just a good time to go at the mm -hmm. time. For people who don't know the Birmingham hotbed, I guess, if you want to use that word of electroacoustic music, including the Birmingham Electroacoustic Sound Theater, or BEAST as it's called, which during my time in England, I was able to experience two or three different performances, one of them of electroacoustic music. And they also, they did a performance of Stockhausen Momenta while I was there. Pretty exciting stuff for a nerd from Surrey, that's for sure. So what, what kinds of things did you do while you were there, at least in the initial master's degree part of it? Well, yeah, they had the Beast that time. I think it was a 32-speaker sound system. A lot of speakers. So the shows were pretty interesting uh, for a guy from Edmonton. I had heard multi-channel works, but, you know, it's nice when you're there and that's all you get every day. Well, not every day, but uh, on a regular basis. So then you're creating works that are going to get played on the Beast. And, you know, it sounded quite good. It was a really nice system. Everyone around you were doing really interesting acousmatic works because they were focusing on acousmatic work there at the time. So I was a bit of a, a weirdo there because uh, I wasn't doing acousmatic works, although I did, I did do a piece that was acousmatic, but I was doing interactive stuff for the most part. Can you maybe just say a little bit of what, what you mean by acousmatic? Not everybody is familiar with that term. These are works where uh, the sounds are recorded or generated individual sound clips or pieces are then arranged into a, a piece that has structure over time. So a lot of them were pre-recorded works that were then diffused by moving faders around and mixing the sound around the space live. What was called tape pieces uh, in the old days when there was tape. So Birmingham had been doing this since Jaunty started the program in the 80s. So they developed as, you know, a center for this kind of uh, composing and uh, this diffusion uh, playback system for live performance or live playback, I guess, of these works. Pretty cool uh, to be in that environment. With the gear, the studios were, you know, better than anything I had used. 
but you were you were doing mostly interactive works while you were there though yeah i uh was trying to design this installation for many years actually uh, called sonic spaces the kinetics of sound and i'd actually started it in late 90s i had been trying to learn max and and msp for signal processing and to design this you know piece where you walk into a room and your motion in the room generates soundscapes it was hard to do on my own i was able to realize it there i had no idea previously but computers were too slow to do it previously and it ended up taking up three computers to run the piece it happened at the right time i guess because the technology had just gotten there so there was that vision i had of that one piece that I wanted to do there. So that's, I guess that's what really brought me there. So over the years, in, you know, in addition to Birmingham, you've been across Canada, you've had performances and um, lots of places in Europe, and you've especially been involved in work in Estonia. Just to bring it back to Edmonton slightly, I'm wondering in the years that you've been coming and going from Edmonton, how have you seen the Edmonton scene change? It has changed quite a lot. You know, I think Edmonton was... We are lucky in that we had this community of people into electronic music. People like myself and a few other people were very active at producing shows. There was Beams, the Boreal Electroacoustic Music Society. There was Marcel Dion and people at the campus radio station that were producing shows before that even. So there was an interest and there was a community. I think with Beams, it's just been able to sustain this sort of community for a long time. And um, I think Edmonton has a very vibrant experimental and electronic and noise and various other kind of musics scene. And, and it's not quite like that in, in lots of places. Mm -hmm. So I think the community has developed, you know, there's a lot more people in, involved. There's different communities of people in the city doing their things. The number of people doing it has expanded a lot. So. There's a lot more breadth, I think, at, at what's going on here, which is really cool. Maybe we should talk a little bit about the Boreal Electroacoustic Music Society, or BEAMS, as you were calling it. Um, and you were really one of the founders of that organization, I think. I was there at the beginning. Uh, I was a young guy when it started. So I was more just involved in shows and taking part in events and, you know, sat in on the meetings and stuff. It was a lot of the campus radio guys who are older and people like Marcel Dion who you know just really enthusiastic listeners and and fans of of experimental music got the ball rolling you know as some of those people just became less involved they got families or whatever then I was old enough to be producing events and had the connections to bring people to Edmonton and and was able to bring some really fantastic progressive music and multimedia shows to Edmonton. I brought Michael Brook in probably 1991 or something like this. But, uh, yeah, Michael Brook was one of my favorites at the time. He'd worked with, you know, Daniel Lanois and, and Brian Eno and was creating this amazing ambient and guitar music and stuff. And I just got into my head that Michael Brook should come to Edmonton. So I phoned the record label in England one day, which at that time was not cheap to make a phone call to England. It was like a couple bucks a minute. Anyway, so I phoned the record label and said, yeah, I'd like him to come to Edmonton. And they're like, oh, okay. 
All right. And then I got a call maybe, I don't know, a year later or something. And they're like, okay, he's touring US and he can come to Edmonton. So, uh, so we brought Michael Brook to Edmonton and it was a fantastic show. And his sound man was uh, James Pinker, who was one of the guys from the band SPK, which was a famous noise band from the late 70s. And so it was like double mind blowing having Michael Brook and then James Pinker and then I remember I brought these guys in that time as well. They were called Screen. Eric Rosenswag and Willie Demetra, a very active visual artist in Toronto. And they were doing this very, very crazy interactive stuff with vid video and live animation and weird electronic music and performance. They created all these MIDI controllers out of strange objects and project this, this huge video projection of this strange animations made with bits of lint and strange video effects and it was all interactive so the bits of lint being animated were like triggering weird video effects and sounds and that was pretty wacky that was uh that was probably 1991 or two or something yeah i think they first started putting shows on in the mid 80s and then incorporated about 89 it became beams for real and it's still happening now, and you're still yeah. directly involved as the president. Yeah, I'm the president again after I finished all my university stuff and in Edmonton more and able to participate more. I'm doing that for a few years now. Yeah. And we keep it going. Even in the pandemic, we're doing um, maybe not quite a show a month, but certainly quite a few shows in a year. Notably during the pandemic, I mean, Beams was one of the organizations that kept going or has kept, I, guess I shouldn't speak in the past tense really, should I, about the pandemic? It, strangely, it hasn't really affected our audience numbers. The same number of people who would come in person are online. So uh, maybe not the same people, but uh, so that's been interesting. It's actually been not a bad thing for us. Yeah, some, somewhere down the road, I think we, we all need to get together and talk about this whole issue of, you know, live streamed versus live shows and, it's an interesting exercise in accessibility, you know, to be making these things available to anybody anywhere in the world. They can sit and enjoy these pieces. Yeah, it's interesting that way because, yeah, some of our audience is, is abroad yeah. um, and they're participating. They're sending works in, they're buying memberships. So it's quite, <laughs> quite, you know, it's cool. It's, you know, really interesting that uh, someone on the other side of the world is like, decided that they're a beams guy and they're sending pieces into our shows every every time and stuff so uh but why not it's good i mean beams is um if not absolutely unique in the world i think it's a, unusual in the sense of it's a place where anybody who has some work to show has a chance to show it yeah yeah it's always been very uh accessible i think from the beginning and that was part of it was it was just people enjoying experimenting and listening to experimental sound and music you know it wasn't uh based in academic work or or in punk rock or in noise music or anything everybody was just you know is such a small community when it began that you couldn't be picky so uh uh anyone who was interested was was welcome so and we've kept that i think that mindset
Let's talk about some of your music a little bit and some of the work you've been doing over the last few years or so since I've known you anyway. Starting with something that's actually pretty recent, which is a piece called Peace of Home. That, in fact, is a pandemic piece, although I don't want to, you know, sort of just label it as that. It is a piece you happen to have made during the pandemic. Um, I started the piece when I was living up in Grand Prairie, and I was teaching at uh, Grand Prairie Regional College, which is now Northwestern Polytechnic. They just changed their name a few weeks ago. At the time, it was the beginning of the pandemic, and wasn't going anywhere, wasn't doing anything. What I was doing was going for drives in the countryside, and uh, you know, in Grand Prairie, it's not a very big city, so in 15 minutes, you could be in, in the wilderness. And uh, we did have an ambisonic mic in the studios there. So I started traveling and recording field recordings. You know, it was springtime and there wasn't much else to do. And I just got the idea for this piece that it, and I'd actually been working on the idea for a while actually, because the previous year I was recording bees and had this idea of working uh, with the sounds of bees for electroacoustic pieces. And then with the pandemic, it just made it, uh, you know, that it could be a soundscape piece where I'm exploring the region around the peace region. So then I started traveling uh, in different directions from the city, stopping, you know, when I saw something that might be good to record or a place that was quiet or a place that was noisy. Like I recorded really every kind of soundscape that I came across. And I just went in the four directions. So one one day I went, you know, in one direction and collected sound and then uh, made it a day trip and then would end up back home. And then the next day or in a few days, whenever the weather was good or um, I had the time, then I would head out in another direction. And so I recorded um, many hours of material. And uh, so I had all this material of the region and so then I uh, was in Estonia after this, uh, you know, with the pandemic, they were laying off everybody. <laughs> and so I ended up out of a job and uh, in Estonia hanging out there. And I met Patrick McKinley, who runs uh, Framework Radio, which is an online sound art radio program. Uh, well, not only online, they broadcast in a number of countries as well. So Patrick said, you know, what are you working on? Do you have a piece for me? <laughs> and I'm like, I don't know, maybe. And he's like, 57 minutes, send it to me. So then I had a, I had a venue to uh, have it uh, broadcast. And so that kind of shaped that piece in that it had to be 57 minutes. So that gave lots of time to explore the recordings I had. And then I just came up with a structure of the piece, which was essentially, um, you know, going in the four directions, sort of spatial, how I constructed the piece and the explorations that I had as I was driving around and finding things to record. It sort of has a narrative structure then that is, is pretty concrete. And am I right that that's sort of unusual in your work? Um, I have done that kind of work in the past. Um, there was a time in the 90s when I was doing soundscape pieces and pieces for radio more. And I hadn't done that kind of thing in a while. So it was actually something I wanted to explore and come back to. And and so it was sort of intentional that I would do a piece like that in the next, you know, in the years around here. <laughs> so, so it wasn't totally an accident. I was just interested in soundscape works again and 
and then working with uh, ambisonic recording which i have been for some years but not for soundscapes and then you know having recordings that are are totally uh, you know spatial mm -hmm. with binaural playback or surround sound playback so then um, i created the work so that it actually could be presented in any format so it can be uh, stereo it can be well there is a binaural version that's posted on my Bandcamp, and then if it ever needed to be surround sound or 32 speakers or however many speakers then it, it can be with just uh, the right plugins to remix it or to just export it again So with all that uh, recorded sound and no doubt with your earphones on and this beautiful microphone, did you find any sounds that actually really surprised you? Or did you discover some later, maybe even that you didn't know that you'd heard the first time that you recorded them? Well, certainly all the, uh, <laughs> the day the mic fell out of the cradle of the boom, that I discovered later. So there was like a whole half day that was wrecked, unfortunately. There was some very, you know, nice soundscapes. You know, it was the spring and there was places with dripping water and the sounds of birds and the trees, you know, just starting to get leaves and 
So there was some very beautiful soundscapes and places that I hadn't been as well. Like I traveled hundreds of kilometers and uh, found some very beautiful and nice places in the north, which is very, very nice, you know, to see parts of Alberta that you don't normally get to if you're living down south here. It's a long way up there. There was lots of very beautiful sounds, so, and not all of it was of nature. I recorded dudes racing their boats along the river or people ripping their ATVs around and, and stuff like that. So, and I recorded bees, which, uh, kind of was the original <laughs> idea to make a bee piece. My friend, David McGregor, he has bees. And so we'd go out to his place or I would go out to his place and hang out and, and then he would put on his beekeeping kit and open the beehive and I'd stick microphones in there and record some bees. And that actually was pretty interesting. They make a lot of different sounds and up close, you know, it sounds way different than from far away. There's a lot of different sounds they make, you know, uh, sort of micro sounds and such. It wasn't easy to record them. Getting the mics into a position that would really record them well. You know, with the ambisonic mic, it's fairly large, so it would be, you know, kind of outside the hive, pointed in the entrance or something. And then you can pull the lid off, and I put smaller mics, just stereo mics, inside. But, you know, if you lift up the next part, you're in the hive, and maybe they'd chew on the microphones or this kind of thing. So you'd have to do some experimenting to really explore it fully. But we spent a few days recording them, and got some interesting sounds for sure. And um, many don't know the Peace region is one of the primary bee uh, regions of Canada. Like a large percentage of the honey in Canada gets produced up there. I forget what the percentage is, but it's a lot. So that was also kind of the idea of uh, Peace. Uh, I did it recently, more recently, which was where the bees buzz was sort of an extension of that project, where I had all these field recordings. And then I decided to do sort of electroacoustic sound pieces to go with that. So sort of inspirational or inspired by the soundscapes that I had. A few different sections in the piece. One is inspired more by the nature sounds and the last section's a bit more crazy sounding and a bit more spooky. And it's sort of more inspired by, uh, by the bees and, and other sounds like that.
Could you imagine a live performance of some kind coming out of it? Yeah, yeah, there can be. The piece um, where the bees buzz is created from some improvised type works, right? Took the sounds and and uh, and would perform them live, essentially, live to recording anyway, and then uh, edited them and put them together, you know, into a piece, which, um, you know, for many years has been my live performance process is doing live improvisation with recorded sounds. So in this piece, I, you know, took that technique and then edited the sounds after to create, you know, this, this compositional work that was fixed rather than live. You know, there can be live performances, you know, with that same material and could be worked into a live piece. So was something like Piece of Home or going back a little further, there's a piece of yours called Ortona. They're both really large-scale pieces, and they both are based on pre-recorded sounds being brought into a composition. Could you talk a little bit about what your process is like? Um, yeah, it you know, it varies from piece to piece what the inspiration is. Sometimes it's the sounds with all these field recordings. I didn't know what kind of piece it was going to be, and it ended up being kind of this geographical structure to it. You put these things together in a way that the sound sources suggest. I'm not like a strict like notes on paper or building a structure by writing it out. I do sort of depend on the materials that I'm working with to inspire the pacing and the flow and the structure of the work. The sounds do suggest where the piece is going to go. So I often work from that sort of perspective with sounds that I have, listen to them, I'll process them, create some new sounds, get kind of a library of, of sources and then start going through them and see what fits together and what doesn't fit together. And, and then uh, with that structure starts to reveal itself where it's like, okay, this, these sounds work together, they're interesting, they can be layered, they can be sped up, slowed down whatever is going to happen with them and then these sounds they work together and maybe these sounds work together and then you start thinking about well what order do they go in and uh, how do you want the piece to build so that's often kind of the process I go through does all that reviewing and planning and replanning does that all happen in your head or do you write it down or I rarely write it down I have done pieces where they were graphically mapped and maybe those pieces tend to be a little more structured, at least in the olden days. The part of my practice has been sort of improvising with sound in these live performances. And that was really inspired by George Lewis. And he actually did sort of improvisation sessions with us where he would sort of talk about improvisation and the thought process. And uh, he would even dissect an improvisation, like start improvising and then stop and discuss what he's thinking about and where he's going next. So I took that to heart with my sound composing or live sound compositions and thinking about structure and, and sound and where it's going over time and planning 10 minutes or 15 minutes into the future. And then just based on what is happening at the moment, maybe you go in a different direction, but maybe you go in the direction you're thinking of it's all up to the moment what you feel inspired by. That sort of improvisatory sort of approach is something that, you know, I incorporate even into my, you know, fixed 
pieces because I always am doing some improvising of, of sound creation, uh, you know, at the beginning, you know, maybe I'll just be jamming. Maybe I'll just create like an hour of stuff and then be editing those later or even make an hour worth of stuff, edit it, and then do another hour worth of stuff based off the first hour of stuff and then even do a third hour of stuff and then edit that. <laughs> so there can be many layers of, of this process to generate the sounds that I, that I want for a piece. So Talking about improvisation brings me to uh, another one of your recent pieces, which is called Scapes and Shapes. This was a piece you did with Jeff Collins, who's a painter. Basic premise of that was that you improvised and Jeff painted in reaction to your music. And I'm quite a clumsy technology user, so I find I find improvising with computers to be difficult, and I don't I don't do it very happily. But it's something you do extremely well. I'm curious about what what goes into the preparations for an improvisation like how do you before that eight o'clock showtime or whatever it's going to be and do you have to do a lot of work ahead of time to make sure that you're ready to go because sometimes those you know max patches and and computers and things like that are very testy not not very happy partners in these things mm -hmm. um well i have to say i i do usually rehearse in advance but what I rehearse is completely different from what I do on show day. I'll actually make notes about sounds that I like or things, you know, that go well together. And then when I'm improvising, I don't have time for that. The process of thinking about sound is started by the rehearsal. So it kind of gets the juices flowing. So when I am performing, then I'm already in a state where I'm listening and looking for certain structural elements and sounds and processing or you know maybe in the rehearsal i discovered some new way of processing sounds in my max patch that i hadn't thought of before or i often have also like little electronic doodads i have a little analog weird synth thing i made and walkie talkie or a tape recorder or some kind of noise making thing to just kind of add to the stuff that's there. So then if I want suddenly tape recorder noises of, I don't know, me wandering around talking about what I'm looking at, or I don't know, just whatever. You, you can't understand it anyway, so it doesn't matter what it is. So then I have those elements that I can just bring in and, and, and be a part of it. So yeah, I often don't have a clue what I'm doing. Yeah, on that piece for sure, um, I was just going with it and you know I was watching what um, Jeff was doing as well and so you know he was putting stuff there and you know I was like kind of watching what he was doing at times and sort of you know kind of adding elements that I thought that might be of interest I think did he put wolves or something on there and then I brought in a recording of wolves <laughs> um, so there was a bit of back and forth so did Jeff uh, like did he have some pre-knowledge of what you were going to do? No, it was totally on the spot. So it was fun. It was cool. And then, yeah, and it's on Bandcamp. He gave me permission to put the painting up there. And uh, and so there's a, a JPEG of that. Brings up a, a question for you about working with other people, actually, because pretty much the whole time I've known you, I've certainly heard you do solo pieces and so on, but I've seen you improvise with other musicians, dancers, 
I believe some theater people at one point, but all sorts of different contexts. So uh, what kinds of things do you really enjoy about working with other people that sort of maybe is, it gives you something that doesn't come into your solo work? Yeah, I always find inspiration, you know, with different people. Like, it doesn't really matter what medium they are, I think, you know, it's, you know, everyone brings something and it's about the personalities and the people involved and what you know what you make out of that and this interaction and feeding off their creativity and action and reaction and there's a point when i you know i wasn't working with people at all and then uh, i just started working with folks and really enjoyed that process so during the pandemic it's been a real bummer because you're not really working with people much so uh, we really, really miss that awesome. Moth for the bones. You find them, an articulated spine arcing and barely visible as they surface and break my gentle green tide, where your thoughts exhume and question that which once foraged and fell in a daily servitude to flesh, blood, and survival. By time or deed, their bones succumb to their tenderness of my long, pungent brown roots, penetrating, demineralizing, and mulching their structure, stripping away those last remnants of sinew from this premonition of death everlasting. The lips. Can you taste the night rain upon your tongue as you explore that feathery down deep to where the cold peat lies and speaks to you of muskets and sloughs and promises of an everlasting home? It is here that my roots switch water and expel an air of a sullen musk to rise amongst your nostril hairs and charm the body's mind. But you, fickle to sensation, and feeling those drops of rain shaken from branches by the morning breeze, inhale again, rise and leave, leaving me with only a shallow memory of a body's weight and residual warmth that lingers, lingers in my garden amongst spruce cones and twigs and mushrooms and those tiny wild roses whose kisses you will remember for their soft penetrating thorns of longing.
let's finish off just with a kind of a speculative question. I think when we were talking by email, you said you were kind of in between works right now. Wondering if you have something in mind for what you want to do next, or maybe even at some level, do you have some dreams about something you want to do? I do want to work with these ambisonic recordings that I have and see if there's anything else in there. But that's kind of more of a continuation piece um, from what I've been doing. Uh, maybe it's a suite of pieces. Maybe there's more of these works that are uh, impressions of, of soundscapes, you know, where I'm sort of just making something based off the feeling I get from certain spaces or, you know, I was in all those places. So, um, you know, I have those impressions of what it was like to be down some forestry road 150 kilometers when I'm on quarter of a tank of gas you know it's <laughs> like uh, there was a few moments where I realized <laughs> it was not the best idea but uh, so maybe there's you know there's that piece I think there's still something there that I'm working on but also um, like a couple of years ago I released uh, uh, an album with my friend Rose McDowell who's a singer-songwriter from the UK Scottish artist she would like me to compose some new pieces, a follow-up to that. So there is that in mind as well. They would be more melodic pieces like that album was, which is not really something I've done in a while, but there's um, lots to explore. So that album is very soundy. Um, it was recorded quite many years ago, but it uh, you know kind of mixed her sort of folk pop influences in my electroacoustic and soundscapey influences so there might be something there we need to get done and I don't know I'm kind of open to stuff. Do you imagine that at any stage in your life you might just sort of put an end to learning new technologies or do you think that that it's always going to be important to you to learn new things? Um, I think I'll always be learning stuff. I'm learning stuff all the time to tell the truth. I do have a day job at the moment that takes up a lot of time. Uh, it's a day job where I'm learning stuff in technology every day. So who knows, maybe some of these things that I'm working on programming and, and different interactive technologies end up uh, being some kind of a piece in the future when I have more time. But yeah, I'm always, and I take guitar lessons these days. So I'm a terrible guitarist, but um, I'm a lot better than I was a year and a half ago. And that's not saying much, like I'm not great, but but you never know, there might be, it might be a guitar piece in my future, I don't know. So there's always something going on and you don't really know where it will take you as far as pieces go. So I really wish I had an ambisonic mic to play with these days, but I do not. Um, so maybe I'll buy one at some point here and get back into field recording and, and uh, that kind of thing. Cause I do enjoy that after being away from it for so long. There's lots of, stuff floating around but nothing super uh, solidified at the moment it sounds a little bit like you're not an artist at least not at the moment that feels like they have to be constantly doing something doing a new piece or constantly getting things finished and performed and disseminated and so on is that would that be accurate you know i've put out a couple pretty big pieces in the last year so haven't been doing nothing certainly production is less than it would be if uh it was my full-time endeavor and there's just not as many opportunities right now not so many events and festivals and in europe there is 
but it's a long way away so it's hard to do all the traveling when you're when you're working a day job but yeah I, at the moment i don't feel like i have to be producing like i don't have to present to every festival and be everywhere and do everything and you know at the moment i don't have that feeling um it's just not possible during the pandemic but certainly you can keep busy uh, explore some things and more at my own pace i guess yeah certainly when it's your what's your if it's your main job that pressure to get the work out there and be generating income is is a pretty big thing but right now there's no income to be generated from art so just is not a thing at the moment it's or it could be but it's very difficult so i'm not even trying to worry about it so but that's good you know maybe the pieces that come out are uh things that uh, are more for myself than for an audience because i'm not having to make stuff you know for a specific type of thing yeah i do wonder whether that's going to be a bit more of an outcome of the current situation that more of us are just going to be doing whatever we want to do and you know, if we can find a place to do it, that's great. Otherwise, it, it just happens. I hope that's the result. You know, you know, I have this fear that a lot of people go away from making art and find, you know, things that actually earn a living in a pandemic to do. It's hard to know where it goes. It depends how long this lasts. I hope there's not like a, a desert <laughs> of creators, you know, people who just never got the training or never practiced for a bunch of years because of the pandemic and then we come out of the pandemic and then there's a lost generation of creators i don't know that's that's like a disaster scenario and i hope it doesn't happen hard to know the impact on younger people time goes so quickly for me that i don't really feel like this has been a long time but the wear and tear has been considerable i think on all of us no matter what but i do you know we we do a lot of work with younger artists with New Music Edmonton, and there's there's a lot of stuff happening. I'm optimistic that way anyway, that they're still there. Yeah, I, I get that feeling too. I do get that feeling that they're out there. I wish we were all having a beer watching it, but um, that's um, not the case at the moment. I think you're right, though. I think people are still creating. You know, when I first started making music, it wasn't about performing it or anything. It was being creative, just didn't have anything else I wanted to be doing than to create. So I did. There will always be artists and they're going to be making stuff. There'll always be artists. That's a good way to end, I think. Sky.
That brings us to the end of this edition of The No Normal. New Music Edmonton is a not-for-profit organization, generously supported by the Canada Council for the Arts, the Alberta Foundation for the Arts, Canadian Heritage, SoCan Foundation, Alberta Gaming, Liquor and Cannabis, CJSR Radio, and the City of Edmonton. A sincere thank you to all our supporters and sponsors, along with our members, volunteers, and NME staff and board members who keep it all together and happening for New Music Edmonton, to the artists whose work is the reason we come together, and of course, thank you for joining us. Visit newmusicedmonton.ca for programming updates and for our streaming archive of on-demand digital works presented in this series. The No Normal Podcast was created by Caitlin Sean Richards and Ian Crutchley for New Music Edmonton. I'm Oscar Tsitbath.